simply as followers if we believe in the gospel not just like 90 minute service belief like for real belief the gospel changes everything belief in that kind of way then the question we should be asking is how then shall I be? Welcome to the Together Podcast, a conversation about faith, justice, and how to change the world. I'm Kat, and as you'll probably already guessed, Dan isn't here today, but I'm joined by Chris. How are you doing? I'm doing good, thanks. How are you doing? Are you right? Doing the intro, you feeling strong, feeling bold? I'm, I'm feeling excited. <laughs> do you, not, you, you, you do not understand how long I've been waiting for this moment um, to introduce the podcast. Finally, Dan isn't here. <laughs> Finally, was that always your goal, just to get rid of that? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Thanks. I'm like really. Uh, I've been blown away by how many people have done the climb already, um, which is amazing. Already raised over fifty thousand. Is it fifty thousand pounds? Let me stop you there. Right. Stop me. We've raised over eighty thousand pounds and this is when we're recording it so by the time you're listening to it I wouldn't be surprised if we're at a hundred thousand pounds it's been incredible it's awesome I think it's been one of the one of the good things to come out of this lockdown situation um but yeah there'll be more details on that later in the show so have a listen out for those So today we'll be hearing from pastor, author and founder of One Day's Wages, Eugene Cho. He spoke to Chris about what it takes to lead others and how we can best pursue justice and love in this divisive world. But before we move on, it's time for my questions. I've been waiting so long to do this and I'm really excited because this week's question comes from our listener. Um, her name's Abby and she submitted one question to us to use for Cat's questions, which I'm so excited about. So it. shout out Abby. Shout out Abby, what our number one listener, maybe our <laughs> only listener, we never know, you know. Um <laughs> so um she asks, which is better when baking? The raw mix or final products? So, for example, do you use, um, you know, cookie dough or a cake mix or do you uh, make the mix yourself? I see. You, you know what? <gasps> no, actually. You know what? She's asking the wrong question, a different <laughs> question, but I interpreted it wrong. But we'll ask it anyways. Okay, so do you use a mix or do you do it yourself? So, like, I'm not the biggest baker, as I think I discussed when uh, we had Martha on the podcast. Yeah. Uh, not because I don't like baking, just because I just, I just, you know, I just don't have time for it in my busy schedule. You know, twenty four <laughs> hours locked inside. <laughs> I mean, you have plenty of time now, Chris. <laughs> no, I've been doing be... so much baking. I literally can't find flour, um, so that's part yeah. of the problem. That's part of the problem. But um, if I was to bake in my ideal world, I'd always make the mix myself. Okay. Right. Yeah. I I agree because. Yeah, I just I just think it's such a like pointless exercise. Why are you gonna buy a mix? <laughs> like, I don't know. Although you can buy a lot of mix pre mixed mixes in the in the supermarkets right now, but you can't actually get flour, which is really annoying. It is really um, frustrating. Yeah. But her actual question was 
I don't really understand. So cookie dough or cookies? And oh, I get it. Right. So if so, I see. I'm not the kind of person that will eat like your <laughs> cake mix. So I prefer the cake over the cake mix. So you know, like if you're make if you're baking when in the odd times that you do bake. Yeah. And you have that leftover, or like, yeah. do you try the cookie dough? Well, I love I love like cookie dough. I think it's one of the like the tastiest, like half baked cookie dough. Mm, it's delicious, yeah. but like I don't know about full on raw. Is that like not gonna destroy you? <laughs> I just think like anything that has eggs in it, I'm not touching it. It's raw. a bit of a it's a bit of a dangerous game that. Yeah, because I feel like even cookie dough is like it's still made to be okay to eat. Like if you get cookie yeah, dough, exactly. whereas. Like, if you actually make, like, mix a cake mix and you start eating the cake mix. That's like, yeah, salmonella. <laughs> yeah, that just doesn't sit right with me. Although, I did see a video, I think I saw it on TikTok, because TikTok <laughs> is taking over my life. Um, check out my baking videos, they're great. Um, but, yeah, I saw a video where a guy basically picked out all the cookie doughs out of Ben and Jerry's ice cream and put it in the oven to bake. Isn't that just like a really long-winded way of getting yeah. cookie dough? Yeah. But I, I think even... it was it was it was quite cool. Like it came out with like little mini I'm like showing you this. <laughs> 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 like it came out with really tiny and it was really cute. But yeah, like it must have taken him like an hour. To... Yeah, that's not worth it. Let me just buy the cookie dough up and just cook it. The worst thing though with cookie dough is like I swear it has like a millisecond between like being perfect and being burnt. Do you know yeah. what I mean? It's mm-hmm. literally always that time when you're like, oh, I'll give it two minutes and you come back and it's like just black and you're like, oh. <laughs> yeah, it's not great. <laughs> okay, well, let's um, wrap up Kat's questions or we could just go on forever because Dan's not here. So he's not here to keep track. Um, but thanks, Abby, for submitting your questions. And please do, if you're listening and would like to participate in these great questions, do send them in at We Are Tear Fund on instagram leave us a message tell us how you're feeling tell us how you're getting on lockdown but for now it's time to hear from eugene hey everyone my name is eugene cho i am from seattle washington in the united states and i wear multiple hats i'm a pastor Although I stepped down from the church that my wife and I planted about 20 years ago, we recently stepped down. So right now, we feel like we're called to pastor other pastors, missionaries, and leaders. So we've been traveling around the world a bit. I also run a grassroots humanitarian organization called One Day's Wages. It's a movement of people, stories, and actions to alleviate extreme global poverty. Check us out, onedayswages.org. Uh, I'm also an author. I'm just coming out with a book entitled Thou Shalt Not Be a Jerk, A Christian's Guide to Engaging Politics. Don't get defensive. It's not written for you, I don't think. Um, And uh, in addition to that, uh, most importantly, I'm married to my wife, Minhee, and father of three kids. Awesome. So much in that. Where do we start? Yeah, I actually want to kind of ask a question about being a pastor to the pastors. Yeah. Is that something that you felt you lacked or needed when you were leading your church? Uh, that's a great question. I think early on, I think I did lack that. 
and maybe part of it was because I didn't know that I needed that. Mm. Sometimes, and again, this is a broad generalization, so I want to be careful, but I, at least for myself, when I was younger, I felt really impervious. I knew it all, if you will. Mm. And it was a little later on that I realized that no person, no pastor, no Christian, no individual is an island to themselves. Mm. Uh, we're as deep as the people that we surround ourselves with. Mm. And so I think in this season, I'm turning 50 this year. Um, it's a joy to be able to come alongside others with words of encouragement. I, I genuinely believe that one of the greatest challenges for believers today is to stay encouraged mm. because there's just so many things that could discourage us. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And like you said, you stepped away from your church about almost two years ago now, isn't it? A little over a year ago. Uh, just a little yeah. over a year ago. How has life changed since then? Well, uh, there's been some grieving, to be honest with you. Mm. Uh, I knew it was going to be tough because my wife and I started and planted this church. Mm. So it might not be the best analogy, but the church felt like a baby or a child to us. Mm. So it was hard, but then going through it was much more difficult than mm. we envisioned. It wasn't just our church. It wasn't just my job. Yeah. Uh, it was our family. Uh, it was our community. Yeah. Uh, so our kids still go to the church, and we stay connected through prayer. We love the church. We're praying and cheering on for the church. Uh, but yes, it is a new chapter. Mm. And part of this chapter, I think, is um, having a different imagination of how we utilize our time and yeah. resources and energy. Yeah, I read about you said one of the reasons that you wanted to step back was that you felt like you were holding your church back. That's quite a unique thing to hear from leadership in churches. Mm. What did you mean by that? And I guess, how have you seen that change now that you have stepped away? Yeah. You know, this is how I described it to my church when I made this announcement. Um, and I hope this doesn't sound arrogant. Uh, I know that my church loves me, mm. loves my wife and I. They respect us immensely. They would never fire us unless there was some kind of like a moral failure. And mm. that wasn't the case. And so we needed to really, and I needed to really have a deep, honest, vulnerable, introspective conversation with myself. Mm. 10 years ago, the metaphor that I used to describe my life was a Swiss army knife. Mm. Like I prided myself in the fact that I could do so many different things. Mm. Interestingly, in 10 years, that which I thought was my strength has grown to be my biggest weakness. Mm. Because I'm realizing you can't do everything. You just can't. You can't go deep. Mm. And so even as Christians, there are many things that we care about, including justice. But there are so many justice issues. Yeah. It's okay to know about many things, but we can't go deep in every single thing. Mm. So I just needed to take some time to say, I can't do everything. What is it that God might be in the next major chapter of my life be calling me to go deeper in? Yeah. So that was the reason why we made that decision. Yeah, and that's great because I think, you know, so much of the time we kind of think about, I don't know, I can't speak for everyone, but growing up in church, for me, it kind of felt like you will find your destiny and that is what you will do for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting hearing from your perspective, there's very much, life is a lot more fluid than that. You know, and I think part of it is our world is changing, our culture is changing, not to say that our calling should parallel our society or culture, mm -hmm. but... There are some that I think may be called to be and do one thing for the remainder of their lives. Mm. But I think it's actually life. One thing that I've learned, and I would love for folks to really hear this well and even 
really contemplate this. Life is an endless series of transitions mm. that will ultimately lead us to the final transition yeah. to be with Jesus for eternity. And so we actually have to talk about transitions, learn what healthy transitions look like. Mm. So from a pastoral perspective, the majority of the stories that I've heard were really combustible transitions, yeah. really painful transitions. So we just need a different imagination of what that looks like. But it's not just for pastors, right? Like all of us go through transitions. Yeah. What does it mean to end well, to transition well, to grieve well? And to have joy in our transitions. Yeah. And even to know that within those transitions, it doesn't mean like a door's like chopped off. Like you said, like you still, you're connected to your church still through prayer, through your family. And also even before you left, you had started One Day's Wage, right? That's right. Uh, So you started out in 2009 and since you raised about over, about 8 million, right? Yep. yep. Which is incredible. Can you talk a bit about the story behind it and how you got started in that? Yeah, I love that. So... You know, I went on a trip to Burma slash Myanmar about 12, 13 years ago. Mm. Didn't know much about the country. Uh, The only thing that I knew about it was there was this obscure band called U2 that wrote a song (laughs) called Walk On. Yeah. And Walk On, in a sense, was a song kind of about uh, a woman named Aung San Suu Kyi, who has had some a bit more complicated recent history, but... She was this democratically elected president who was under house arrest for many, many years. Mm. I go to Burma and realize that there was this horrific genocide going on in Mm. that country. So bad that the United Nations called the genocide going on in Burma as horrific as that in Darfur back then. Mm. So we're visiting this makeshift school of First to fifth graders, you can imagine 15 tables and chairs. None of the chairs and tables are matching. There's this overused, scarred, greenish chalkboard in this makeshift classroom in the jungles, literally in the jungles. Mm. And there was this horrific, violent collage of photos plastered on the chalkboard. Uh, To this day, it's probably one of the most violent things that I've seen. And Mm. it was a collage of photos of men, women, and children with missing body parts and limbs, with blood oozing out of it. Wow. Now, in my mind, I'm thinking, there's no way that this is appropriate for first to fifth graders. Yeah. And when they saw that I was disturbed, they actually invite me to come closer, and kind of in this imperfect English, uh, they say, Reverend Cho, pointing to these greenish-grayish metallic contraptions on the bottom of this collage of photos, uh, this, my host says, these are landmines. We must teach children avoid landmines. Mm. And it then kind of makes sense why they felt it was necessary to have those photos up mm. there. And I met uh, one of the elders of the village, some survivors of landmines, and learned that the teachers of that particular classroom and other classrooms, they made $40 as their salary, not per day, mm. not per week, not per month, 40 U.S. dollars per year was their wow. salary. So it just, I mean, again, I knew about justice. Yeah. Probably like many of your listeners, you read, you know I'm passionate. Mm. But something just connected in a way that broke me. Yeah, uh, And I really wrestled with that experience came back home shared it with my wife and kids and you know i thought maybe i'll write a blog post about it 
mm-hmm. go on Twitter and maybe go on a righteous rant mm-hmm. or something or um, do a sermon series or something. But we decided to pray about it. And simultaneously, my wife and I, we were both convicted to give up a year's wages. Mm. And I share that not to sound boastful or, or spiritual, because I know we've shared, we received our share of criticism, but yeah, it was not what we expected. Yeah. And uh, you know, my salary back then as a pastor was 68,000 US. Mm. We don't have 68,000 US lying around. We have three kids that eat six, seven meals a day. Yeah. And if we don't, I'm afraid they might eat us somewhere. <laughs> uh, so it took us three years to save, simplify our life, mm. and then sell off things that we just didn't need. And it was an amazing process because we did it because we wanted to, quote unquote, change the world. But through that, God really changed us as well. Mm. Um, but through that time, we felt like the Holy Spirit gave us this vision about one day's wages. And as we shared our story of giving up one year's wages, we wanted to invite friends and family, church members, strangers to consider mm. just giving up one day's wages. Yeah. And as you shared, in about 10 years, we've had about... 13,000 people around the world, some from the UK, that have given, whether it's one day's wages, run marathons, give birthdays, give $10, Mm. and it's been amazing. That is incredible. And, you know, I think there's a few things that I want to kind of pick apart or pick your brain about. Mm. I think um, one of those things being, you know, being confronted with a different reality to your own and and kind of having that realization of, wow, do I, I have some sort of privilege here? Sure. Uh, do you then think once you have that sort of revelation that it becomes the responsibility of the privilege to make sure we live in a way that life is more equitable for others? Yeah, you know, let's be honest. Nowadays in our culture, whether it's in the US, UK and around the world, there's a lot of conversations about justice, social justice, privilege. Mm-hmm. And I think it's good that we're having these conversations, but it's also really messy Mm -hmm. because we have different nuances and perspectives. And one of the things that I've learned is that as we're having conversations about justice, about equity, about fairness, I want to make sure that what motivates me, especially as I speak with others, isn't fear, guilt, or shame. Mm. I think those might be part of the things that we experience but they can't be the driving factors because mm, they're not sustainable. They're not built for the marathon. They're more for that one-time pop, if you will. Mm. And I want to build kind of my life, even as I experience my own privilege, experience a level of guilt, sometimes shame. But what I want to fuel everything that I do, who I am, my identity, is my faith in Jesus and love. Yeah, love for God and love for people. Mm. And by people, obviously the Bible speaks about loving your neighbors. And what's been really liberating for me, and I want this to be hopefully challenging and liberating for others, and I don't know why it's rocket science, because there's a reason why many of the stories about loving your neighbors, especially in the Gospels, especially with Jesus, are Samaritans, Mm -hmm. the lepers, the widows. So to love our neighbors is to love those who, are, who don't look like us, mm-hmm. feel like us, think like us, worship like us, live like us, to expand our imagination of what it means to love our neighbors. So yes, that teacher in Burma 
as distant as that person may be, is still connected to me because she is also created in the image of yeah. God. So yes, I think there is a responsibility uh, for us to ask, how then shall I live? Yeah. But that question should be a question that we should be asking simply as followers. If we believe in the gospel, not just like 90-minute service belief, yeah, yeah. like for real belief, the gospel changes everything believed in mm. that kind of way, then the question we should be asking is, how then shall I live? I'm just going to quickly interrupt to let you know about an exciting opportunity that you can be a part of. The Climb is the challenge that lets you fundraise for people living in poverty without needing to leave the front door. Make the most of your lockdown and get sponsored for climbing your stairs to the equivalent height of some of the world's most iconic mountains. We may be stuck inside, but all money raised through the challenge will help tier fund respond to the coronavirus and reach those who are being hit the worst. To find out more and apply, head to www.tierfund.org. With everything happening around the world right now, it's easy to feel powerless and isolated, but this is the perfect opportunity to use your time well and make a difference. Now back to the interview. Really interesting because I've never really heard someone kind of articulate that the danger of living that way because of fear or guilt or shame. Uh, but on top of that, there's another direction where it can almost be the saviour complex comes in of like, okay, I, this is what you know, I, I can do this because this is the position I'm in. Mm. How do we deconstruct that? How mm. do we make sure that when we are pursuing justice, that we're doing it as Jesus, as Jesus's body, not sure. as to be Jesus himself? Yeah. yeah. Well, I think first we got to name it. Mm. Uh, there's power in naming things, mm. power in naming sin, power in naming injustice, power in naming the dangers that we might experience. This is the reason why no one is an island to ourselves. Like for us to exist in a bubble, that's a incredibly dangerous formula for the world revolving around me. Mm -hmm. And you name one of those things, this savior hero complex, which let's be honest, particularly in the West, mm -hmm. with the power that we have, the access that we have, the privilege that we have, it's very tempting because we know that we can make a difference and in a very subtle way, we can be seduced and thinking, wow, this is about me. It's about yeah. us. So I think naming it is one of the great antidotes to that. And that we're surrounding ourselves with others who can help us see some of those blind spots as well. Yeah. Uh, a few years ago, I wrote a book called Overrated. Are we more in love with the idea of changing the world than actually changing the world? And it's not a, a guru, here's how to do it. It's more of a confession. Mm -hmm. And one of my confessions is my hero complex. Yeah. Like, I struggled with it. Mm. And there was something really um, almost healing about confessing that that's a struggle. Mm. And I think for those who do justice work, I almost believe it's inevitable. Yeah. You're going to experience it on some level. So we've got to talk about it as opposed to kind of conceal it. And it's something that grows in a very seductive way in our own hearts. Mm. I think when I read about you and I've like seen what you talk about, there's a lot about that kind of open honesty and bringing things up to the surface again instead of letting it fester. That's obviously a big part of the book that you've written, Thou Shall Not Be a Jerk. Mm. Um, 
we live in a world of extremes at the moment. I mean, and I say at the moment, perhaps it's always been this way. We're just kind of naming it more now. Mm. Um, how do we, as a church body, a global church, exist within these extremes? Because calling it out can be pretty, pretty awkward, right? Yeah. So how do we do that? How do we navigate that? Oof, man. That is a great question. And it's really what I try to wrestle with as a pastor. Mm. Leading a congregation with people of myriads of beliefs on all different kinds of things. Mm. I think part of the challenge is that not only do people have beliefs, but with technology and social media and the internet, we feel empowered to then express those beliefs. Mm. Now, in some ways, that's good, but there are challenges because... We're not necessarily grounded by a level of ethics, mm. uh, of parameters, ground rules, if you will. So mm. when it comes to politics, for example, one of my concerns that I write about in the book is that it feels as if politics becoming the idolatry that it's become in our society has politics informs our theology mm. rather than our theology informing our politics. Yeah. That's the danger. And so we got to name the idolatry. Mm. And if we believe that our theology and faith in Jesus is the most important thing, it doesn't matter what others in our culture and society are doing. Just Mm. because people are screaming and bashing and pointing fingers and accusing, spreading lies, doesn't mean that we should necessarily adopt those things at all. Yeah. So we just have to know, who are we? The the three questions that I ask myself regularly, every day actually, Mm. it grounds me, is the three questions. Who am I? Meaning, I'm a child of God. Mm -hmm. I belong to Him. The second question is, um, who do I serve? I serve Jesus and Jesus alone. It's tempting to be seduced by the powers of the world. Mm -hmm. And the third thing is, what am I about? What are my values? What are my guideposts? Mm. What are the things that I want to be known for? Uh, because it's so easy and tempting to succumb to the things of the world. The last thing that I'll just say, because the question that you asked is so good and so complicated, and we should be having that conversation regularly within the walls of the church, mm. is I am fascinated and compelled by the Eucharist, the Lord's table. Okay, yeah. So on Sundays when the Lord's table gathers... It's such, so I love every day, every Sunday at our church, we serve communion. Mm-hmm. And it's so beautiful because even if the worship set isn't right on or tight, if the sermon isn't as good, we always knew that the thing that it always pointed us towards was the Lord's table. Mm-hmm. And it was always good, mm-hmm. always beautiful, mm-hmm. always inviting. And I want to remind people that there's not, I can't think of anything in our world today like the Lord's table, based upon eternal truth that is able to welcome all yeah. that place their faith in Jesus. So from a political perspective, what I tell my church is, we don't have a line on the left for the left, mm-hmm. a line on the right uh, that's a grape juice option <laughs> for the conservative, yeah. and a gluten-free option in the middle <laughs> for our, our soft people. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, like It's for everyone. Yeah. And that invitation has always been very, very compelling to me. Mm. Well, I think it's so incredible talking about that because food, eating together, 
sitting mm. at a table. Mm. It's something where, you know, you're a family person, of course, yourself. You know, how many times do we sit at a table with family members who we disagree with so strongly mm-hmm. on certain things, but you're mm-hmm. welcome there. Mm-hmm. You know, I've seen it on Twitter when like new, when uh, Thanksgiving comes around, there's loads of loads of memes, loads of jokes, people being like, my auntie like shouting yeah. at me about this and that. Yeah. But yeah, everyone's still welcome. Yeah. How far are we from that in the church? Well, I mean, I, I think you, you just preached right there. Uh, that's what we got to be doing. You know, Jesus performs amazing ministries. The thing that most fascinates me is he ate with people Mm -hmm. and he ate with people that he wasn't supposed to eat with, Mm. including Pharisees and religious leaders. Like he, his ministry was the table. I think it's brilliant and fascinating. Like I'm not reducing our involvement as disciples only to the table, but I think it has to involve the table. Yeah. Uh, In the book, I, I talk about uh, and they're not believers, but after the last presidential election in the United States, which was very disruptive and mm-hmm. shocking for probably everyone, yeah. um, these two Asian-American women in Silicon Valley in California, they were so disturbed by the election. They wanted to chat with other people that would have supported the other political party. But then they realized they didn't know anyone. Yeah. And it wasn't so much an accusation of others. I think it was an invitation for them to ask themselves, wow, we've actually surrounded ourselves with an echo chamber of mm. only those that look like us and think like us. Mm. So they started this, uh, they, they uh, invited people to a meal and just shared their story and said, we want to invite people that voted for the other candidates for President Trump mm-hmm. and wondered if you would be willing to break bread with us. And we can just discuss in a safe space. Yeah. And that was the genesis of a global movement called Make America Dinner Again. <laughs> and so it's actually been all over the world. Okay, yeah. I went to one and yeah, and had dinner with people that I disagreed with on many issues. Mm-hmm. But over bread, and the thing was, it's not like we convinced each other overnight, mm. nor did we change the world, change the policies of whatever. Yeah. But I think it made us realize that we don't need to vilify or demonize other people. Yeah. That every person, even if they disagree, still deserves inherent human dignity. Yeah. And that's so important. Yeah. And and how do we balance that with calling out injustice? Because when we look at Jesus in the Bible, you know, he's going to he's calling the Pharisees whitewashed tombs. He's telling Peter, "Get behind me, Satan." Yeah. How do we balance like so passionately needing to bring in the kingdom and bring yeah. in justice with also not being a jerk at the same time? Yeah. So what I what I tell people is I'm not a huge fan of alliteration, but for the sake of this, I'll give it alliteration. <laughs> um, it's the letter P, mm-hmm. and the five P's that I want people to think about is pastoral. Prophetic, personal, practical, and prayer. Mm-hmm. So let, let me begin with personal. We should live what we believe. Mm-hmm. Because if we're screaming and shouting and we're not embodying it in our lives, that's just cognitive dissonance. Yeah. It's hypocrisy. Mm-hmm. So sometimes I'm wondering are people simply righteous behind their keyboards and yet we're not living it out? Mm-hmm. Practical means that I think our convictions ought 
to not just be personal beliefs, but it should lead to change mm -hmm. in the way that we live, but even change in how we want our culture and society. Even if we can't change everything, we should still seek to see change happen. Mm -hmm. First with me, those near me. But the two that I want to focus on is pastoral and prophetic. So in justice work, yeah. we tend to be prophetic. Raise our arms, turn tables, mm -hmm. call out things. And it's important. I actually believe it's important. But we actually need the balance between the pastoral and the prophetic. Mm. You can't just be prophetic and not actually also care from a pastoral level for someone and they're thriving and flourishing. Mm. Simultaneously, I get worried about Christians, particularly leaders, who say, you know what, I don't want to do those things. That's too political. It's too justice. I just want to be a pastor. Mm. And yet, to be a pastor and to engage pastoral work and not engage prophetic, I believe, does disservice to our pastoral work. Mm. We have to do both. And so I think what that means is the balance between grace and truth. It's yeah. the balance between engaging in justice work, but always reminded of that love has to be the fuel that mm. drives us. Because we could do justice work, and without love, I'm really afraid that what ends up happening is we become like a clanging symbol. Yeah. We think we sound beautiful. And then we gather ourselves with other clanging symbols, a choir of clanging symbols, and we think, wow, we're doing beautiful justice work, but without love. Mm. And that's the hard question that we have to keep asking again and again and again is, is there love in my heart for others, even those that we disagree with? I don't know about you, but the most challenging disruptive thing that Jesus teaches about is to love your enemies. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds so simple when, when you've heard it a lo loads of times, but when oh. you just stop and think about it, that's crazy. That's really that, a lot to chew on. That is, I want to rip that portion out of the scripture. <laughs> that, that is hard, mm -hmm. but that's the call of the gospel. Mm -hmm. And that's what makes, that's what makes us countercultural. That's what I think causes the world to go. Wow. That's crazy. great listening back to that conversation so many jewels of wisdom that I was reminded of what stood out to you Kat? For me I loved when he was talking about you know just as in how we can't lead if we're driven by fear or a saviour complex and what that means is you know we can't just you know move and do things because we either fear or we want to look good or look better or look, be that's light saviour that's coming in to like take, sweep you away and take you from this difficult situation but actually we have to leave a lead with love we have to be like what Jesus did you know like he went around and he just loved on people and so like even things you know take for example the current situation that we're in you know we've introduced the climb and the climb isn't to make us look good that we're making the most of lockdown that we're you know, getting fit, but also we're giving loads of money to save people. But actually, no, we're doing it out of love. Um, we're doing it because we know there's people in countries that are so close to us. You know, these these are our global neighbours, and they are going through a lot more 
um, than we are right now. So we're doing it because we want to love on them and that's the way that we can show love right now. And it's just, you know, doing um, challenges, fundraising and sending this money to churches there and locally that they can then provide the needs of people. You know, we were talking about Tear Fund, for example. Like we, we don't just sit on our high horses and give them things that we think is going to be great for them but we actually go out and ask people what they want and ask the communities and the churches locally what the greatest need is and we just serve and that's what Jesus did he served and for me serving is love it's like you serve your friends because you love them you serve your parents because you love them you serve your children your partner you serve because you love and it comes out of love and that's what Jesus did so I think that's a really cool reminder for us even in this time where we feel maybe we're fearful or um, or anything like that you know we can still love um, and we can still pursue justice in this time for sure and I, I think I really enjoyed what he was talking about with it's bit like I want to read that book but it sounded really good I really liked what he was talking about with in terms of saying don't let your politics shape your theology let your theology shape your politics and I think it's something that we've all kind of been like tempted to do at different times but actually like we should see with like a biblical lens and that yeah. everything kind of fall if it doesn't fall into that then maybe it doesn't if not something worth pursuing potentially but yeah I really enjoyed that conversation with Eugene I really enjoyed listening back thank you Kat jumping on the show today you're welcome we're holding it down just the two of us <laughs> uh, thank you for everyone for listening we'll be back again on the 15th of may where we'll be hearing from tandy gamedzi an activist academic and spoken word artist from south africa if you like what you heard today then make sure you hit subscribe and follow us on instagram at we are Tear Fund.